don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. All right, crew, welcome back to the show. We are jumping right back into Shelling Out the Origins of Money by Nick Zabo. This will be part three of four. Um, and uh, I don't want to take too long. There has been some a little bit of news items. Uh, I just want to hit that uh, Tether, um, all the FUD and craziness around Tether for going on, I don't know, nine months, maybe a year. Yeah, pr- pretty much a full year and some change actually now. Um, uh, apparently they have finally, you know, quote unquote proven, I haven't really checked into this at all. This is just something that I figured if y'all hadn't heard, uh, would be interesting. They have proven their, uh, bank balances with some bank called like Dell tech or something. And supposedly the full amount of tether in circulation is backed by what is in their bank account. And I know they have pulled a ton of tether from circulation in the last uh, couple of months or so. And, uh, uh, Hasufly has been reporting on that and as well as a number of other people. So that's just something to check out if you had not heard. Uh, but without further ado, I don't want to uh, waste any more time. Let's go ahead and jump into part three of Shelling Out the Origins of Money by Nick Zabo. And we are beginning with our section, Starvation Insurance. Bruce Winterhalder surveys models of how and why food is sometimes transferred between animals. Tolerated theft, producing, scrounging, or opportunism, risk-sensitive subsistence, byproduct mutualism, delayed reciprocity, trade, exchange not in kind, and other selection models, including kin altruism. Here we focus on risk-sensitive subsistence, delayed reciprocity, and trade exchange not in kind. We argue that substituting trade of food for collectibles for delayed reciprocity can increase food sharing. It does so by mitigating the risks of a variable food supply while avoiding the largely insurmountable problems of delayed reciprocity between bands. We will deal with kin altruism and theft, tolerated or not, in broader context below. Food is worth far more to starving people than to well-fed ones. If the starving man can save his life by trading his most precious valuables, it may be worth to him months or even years of the labor it might take to replace that value. He will usually consider his life worth more than the sentimental value of the family heirlooms. Like fat itself, collectibles can provide insurance against food shortages. Starvation from local shortages could be staved off with at least two different kinds of trades, for the food itself or for foraging or hunting rights. Nevertheless, the transaction costs were usually too high. Bands were far more likely to fight than ever trust each other. The hungry band that couldn't find its own food usually starved. However, if the transaction costs could be lowered, By lowering the need for trust between bands, food that was worth a day's labor to one band might be worth several months' labor to the starving band. 
local but extremely valuable trade was, this essay argues, made possible among many cultures by the advent of collectibles by the time of the Upper Paleolithic. Collectibles substituted for otherwise necessary but non-existent trusting long-term relationships. If there had existed a high degree of sustained interaction and trust between tribes or individuals of different tribes so that they gave each other unsecured credit, this would have stimulated time-lagged barter trade. However, such a high degree of trust then is highly implausible for the reasons stated above regarding reciprocal altruism, confirmed by the empirical evidence that most hunter-gatherer tribal relations have been observed to be quite antagonistic. Hunter-gatherer bands usually broke up into small bands for most of the year and gathered into aggregates, something like medieval European fairs, for a few weeks out of the year. Despite the lack of trust between bands and important trade in staples, of the kind illustrated in the accompanying figure, almost surely occurred in Europe and probably elsewhere, such as with the big game hunters of America and Africa. The scenario illustrated by the accompanying figure is hypothetical, but it would be very surprising if it did not occur. While many Europeans, even in the Paleolithic, enjoyed wearing shell necklaces, many lived farther inland and made necklaces instead out of the teeth of their prey. Flints, axes, furs, and other collectibles were also quite likely used as media of exchange. Reindeer, bison, and other human prey migrated at different times of the year. Different tribes specialized in different prey, to the point where over 90% and sometimes as much as 99% of the remains from many sites during the Paleolithic in Europe come from a single species. This indicates at least seasonal specialization and perhaps full-time specialization by a tribe in a single species. To the extent they specialized, the members of a single tribe would have become experts at the behavior, migration habits, and other patterns surrounding their specific prey species, as well as the specialized tools and techniques for hunting them. Some tribes observed in recent times are known to have specialized. Some North American Indian tribes specialized respectively in hunting bison, antelope, and fishing for salmon. In northern Russia and parts of Finland, many tribes, including the Lap, even today, specialized in herding a single species of reindeer. Such specialization was probably far higher when more large prey, horse, auroch, giant elk, bison, giant sloth, mastodon, mammoth, zebra, elephant, hippopotamus, giraffe, musk, oxen, etc., roamed North America, Europe, and Africa in large herds during the Paleolithic. Large wild animals unafraid of humans no longer exist. During the Paleolithic, they were either driven extinct or adapted to be afraid of humans and our projectiles. However, for most of the time span of Homo sapiens sapiens, these herds were abundant and easy pickings to specialist hunters. According to our theory of trade-based predation, specialization was quite likely far higher when large prey roamed North America, Europe, and Africa in large herds during the Paleolithic. Trade-based division of labor in hunting between tribes is consistent with, although not securely confirmed by, the archaeological evidence from the Paleolithic in Europe. These migrating bands, following their herds, 
frequently interacted, creating many opportunities for trade. American Indians preserved food by drying, making pemmican, and so on in ways that lasted for a few months but typically not a full year. Such food was commonly traded along with skins, weapons, and collectibles. Often these trades occurred during annual trading expeditions. Large herd animals migrated through a territory only two times a year, with a window most often of one or two months. Without any other source of protein besides their own prey species, these specialist tribes would have starved. The very high degree of specialization demonstrated in the archaeological record could only have occurred if there was trade. Thus, even if the time-offset barter of meat were the only kind of trade, this is quite sufficient to make the use of collectibles worthwhile. The necklaces, flints, and any other objects used as money circulate in a closed loop back and forth in roughly equal amounts, so long as the value of meat traded remains roughly equal. Note that it is not enough for the theory of collectibles put forth in this paper to be correct, that single beneficial trades were possible. We must identify closed loops of mutually beneficial trades. With closed loops, the collectibles continue to circulate, amortizing their costs. As mentioned, we know from archaeological remains that many tribes specialized in a single large prey species. This specialization was at least seasonal. If there was extensive trade, it could have been full-time. Becoming experts in the habits and migration patterns and best methods of taking down, a tribe reaped enormous productive benefits. These benefits, however, would normally be unattainable, for specializing in a single species meant going without food most of the year. Division of labor between tribes paid off, and trade made it possible. The supply of food would nearly double from trade, just between two complementary tribes. There were, however, rather than two prey species, often up to a dozen that migrated through most hunting territories in areas like the Serengeti and the European Steppe. The amount of meat available to a species-specializing tribe would thus likely more than double with such trade among a handful of neighboring tribes. On top of this, the extra meat would be there when needed most, when the meat from a tribe's own species prey would already have been eaten, and without food, the hunters would starve. Thus, there were at least four gains, or sources of surplus, from a trade cycle as simple as two prey species and two non-simultaneous but offsetting trades. These gains are distinct, but not necessarily independent. 1. An available source of meat at a time of the year when one would otherwise starve. 2. An increase in the total supply of meat. They traded the surplus beyond what they could eat immediately or store. What they didn't trade would have gone to waste. 3. An increase in the variety of nutrition from meat by eating different kinds of meat and four, increased productivity from specialization in a single prey species. Making or saving collectibles to trade for food itself was not the only way to insure against bad times. 
Perhaps even more common, especially where large prey items were not available, was territoriality combined with trade in foraging rights. This can be observed even in some of the remnants of hunter-gatherer culture that exist today. The Kung San of southern Africa, like all other modern remnants of hunter-gatherer cultures, live on marginal lands. They have no opportunity to be specialists, but must take the meager remnants available. They may thus be rather uncharacteristic of many ancient hunter-gatherer cultures, and uncharacteristic of the original Homo sapiens sapiens, which first seized the luscious lands and best game routes from Homo sapiens neanderthalis, and only much later drove the Neanderthals from marginal lands. Yet, despite their severe ecological handicap, the Kung use collectibles as items of trade. Like most hunter-gatherers, the Kung spent most of the year in small, dispersed bands and a few weeks of the year in an aggregate with several other bands. Aggregation is like a fair with added features. Trade is accomplished, alliances are cemented, partnerships strengthened, and marriages transacted. Preparation for aggregation is filled with the manufacture of tradable items, partly utilitarian but mostly of a collectible nature. The exchange system, called by the Kung Haksaro, involves a substantial trade in beaded jewelry, including ostrich shell pendants, quite similar to those found in Africa 40,000 years ago. One of the main things the Kung buy and sell with their collectibles are abstract rights to enter another band's territory and hunt or gather food there. Trade in these rights is especially brisk during local shortages, which can be alleviated by foraging in a neighbor's territory. Kung bands mark their territories with arrows. Trespassing without having purchased the right to enter and forage is tantamount to a declaration of war. Like the interband food trade discussed above, the use of collectibles to purchase foraging rights constitutes an insurance policy against starvation, to use the phrase of Stanley Ambrose. Although anatomically modern humans surely had conscious thought, language, and some ability to plan, it would have required little conscious thought or language and very little planning to generate trades. It was not necessary that tribe members reasoned out the benefits of anything but a single trade. To create this institution, it would have sufficed that people follow their instincts to make or obtain collectibles with the characteristics outlined below. As indicated by proxy observations that make approximate estimations for these characteristics. This is to various extents true of the other institutions we will study. They evolved rather than being consciously designed. No one participating in the institution's rituals would have explained their function in terms of ultimate evolutionary function. Rather, they explained in terms of a wide variety of mythologies that served more as proximate motivators of behavior than as theories of ultimate purpose or origin. Direct evidence for trade in food has long since decayed. We may in the future find more direct evidence than is now available for this article via comparison of hunting remains in one tribe with the consumption patterns in another tribe. The hardest part of this task likely being to identify the boundaries of different tribes or kin groups. According to our theory, such transfer of meat from one tribe to another 
was common in many parts of the world during the Paleolithic, where large-scale and specialized big-game hunting occurred. For now, we do have extensive indirect evidence of trade via the movement of the collectibles themselves. Fortunately, there is a good correlation between the durability desired for collectibles and the conditions under which an artifact has survived to be found by today's archaeologists. In the early Paleolithic, when all human movement was on foot, we have instances of perforated seashells found up to 500 kilometers away from the nearest source. There was a similar long-distance movement of flint. Unfortunately, trade was severely restricted by high transaction costs in most times and places. The primary barrier was the antagonism between tribes. The predominant relationship between tribes was one of distrust on good days and outright violence on bad days. Only ties of marriage or kinship could bring tribes into a relationship with trust, albeit only occasionally and of limited scope. The poor ability to protect property, even collectibles worn on the person or buried in well-hidden caches, meant that collectibles had to amortize their costs in a few transactions. Trade was thus not the only kind of wealth transfer, and probably not the most important kind during the long human prehistory where high transaction costs prevented the development of the kinds of markets, firms, and other economic institutions we now take for granted. Underneath our great economic institutions are far more ancient institutions that also involved wealth transfer. In prehistoric times, the main kinds of wealth transfer. All of these institutions distinguished Homo sapiens sapiens from previous animals. We now turn to one of the most basic kinds of wealth transfer that we humans take for granted, but other animals do not have. Passing wealth onto the next generation. Kin altruism beyond the grave. Coincidence in time and locale of supply and demand for trade was rare, so much so that most kinds of trades and trade-based economic institutions we now take for granted could not exist. Even more unlikely was the triple coincidence of supply with demand with a major event for a kin group. The formation of a new family, death, crime, or victory or defeat in war. As we shall see, clans and individuals greatly benefited from a timely transfer of wealth during these events. Such wealth transfer in turn was much less wasteful when it was the transfer of a store of wealth more durable and general than consumables or tools designed for other purposes. The demand for a durable and general store of wealth for use in these institutions was thus even more urgent than for trade itself. Furthermore, the institutions of marriage, inheritance, dispute resolution, and tribute may predate intertribal trade, and involved for most tribes a greater transfer of wealth than trade. These institutions thus, more than trade, served as the motivator and incubator of the earliest primitive money. In most hunter-gatherer tribes, this wealth came in a form that strikes us preposterously wealthy moderns as trivial. A collection of wooden utensils, flint and bone tools and weapons, shells on strings, perhaps a hut, and in colder climates, some mangy furs. 
Sometimes it could all be carried on the person. Nevertheless, these motley assortments were wealth for a hunter-gatherer no less than real estate, stocks, and bonds are wealth for us. To the hunter-gatherer, tools and sometimes warm clothes were necessary for survival. Many of the items were highly valued collectibles that ensured against starvation, purchased mates, and could substitute for massacre or starvation in event of war and defeat. The ability to transfer the capital of survival to one's descendants was another advantage Homo sapiens sapiens had over previous animals. Furthermore, the skilled tribesmen or clan could accumulate a surplus of wealth from the occasional but cumulative over a lifetime trade of surplus consumables for durable wealth, especially collectibles. A temporary fitness advantage could be translated into a more durable fitness advantage for one's descendants. Another form of wealth hidden from the archaeologist were titles to offices. Such social positions were more valuable than the tangible forms of wealth in many hunter-gatherer cultures. Examples of such positions included clan leaders, war party leaders, hunting party leaders, membership in a particular long-term trading partnership with a particular person in a neighboring clan or tribe, midwives, and religious healers. Often collectibles not only embodied wealth, but also served as a mnemonic, representing the title to a clan position of responsibility and privilege. Upon death, to maintain order, the heirs to such positions had to be quickly and clearly determined. Delays could spawn vicious conflicts. Thus, a common event was the mortuary feast, in which the deceased was feted while both his tangible and intangible forms of wealth were distributed to descendants, as determined by custom, clan decision-makers, or the will of the deceased. Other kinds of free gifts were quite rare in pre-modern cultures, as Marcel Moss and other anthropologists have pointed out. Seemingly free gifts, in fact, implicitly invoked an obligation in the recipient. Before contract law, this implicit obligation of the gift, along with community dishonor and punishments ensuing if the implicit obligation was not met, was perhaps the most common motivator of reciprocation in delayed exchange, and is still common in the variety of informal favors we do for each other. Inheritance and other forms of kin altruism were the only widely practiced forms of what we moderns would call gift proper namely a gift that imposed no obligation on the recipient. Early Western traders and missionaries who often saw natives as childish primitives sometimes called their tribute payments gifts and trades gift exchanges, as if they bore more resemblance to the Christmas and birthday present exchanges of Western children than to the contractual and tax obligations of adults. Partly this may have reflected prejudice and Partly the fact that in the West by that time, obligations were usually formalized in writing, which the natives lacked. Westerners thus usually translated the rich variety of words natives had for their exchange institutions, rights, and obligations as gift. 17th century French settlers in America were thinly scattered among much larger populations of Indian tribes, and often found themselves paying tribute to these tribes. Calling these payments gifts was a way for them to save face with other Europeans who faced no such necessity and found it cowardly. 
Moss and modern anthropologists have unfortunately kept this terminology. The uncivilized human is still like a child, but now innocent like a child, a creature of moral superiority who would not stoop to our kind of base, cold-blooded economic transactions. However, in the West, especially in the official terminology used for our laws covering transactions, a gift refers to a transfer that imposes no obligation. When coming across anthropological discussions of gift exchange, these caveats should be kept in mind. Modern anthropologists are not at all referring to the free or informal gifts we commonly refer to in our modern use on the term gift. They are rather referring to any of a wide variety of often quite sophisticated systems of rights and obligations involved in wealth transfers. The only major transactions in prehistoric cultures similar to our modern gift, in that it was neither itself a widely recognized obligation nor imposed any obligation on the recipient, were parents or maternal kin caring for their children and inheritance. An exception was that inheriting title to a position imposed the responsibilities of the position on the heir, as well as its privileges. Inheritance of some heirlooms might proceed for several generations uninterrupted, but it did not by itself form a closed loop of collectibles transfers. Heirlooms were only valuable if they eventually got used for something else. They often were used in marriage transactions between clans that could form closed-loop cycles of collectibles. The Family Trade An early and important example of a small closed-loop trade network made possible by collectibles involves the much higher investment humans make in raising offspring than our primate relatives and the related human institution of marriage. Combining arrangements of long-term matches for mating and child-raising, negotiated between clans, with wealth transfer, marriage is a human universal and probably dates back to the first Homo sapiens sapiens. Parental investment is a long-term and almost one-shot affair. There is no time for repeated interactions. Divorce from a negligent father or unfaithful wife usually represented several years of time wasted, in genetic fitness terms, by the jilted party. Fidelity and commitment to the children were primarily enforced by in-laws, the clan. The marriage was the contract between clans that usually included such promises of fidelity and commitment as well as wealth transfer. The contributions a man and a woman will bring to a marriage are seldom equal. This was even more true in an era when mate choice was largely determined by clans and the population from which clan leaders could choose was quite small. Most commonly, the woman was considered more valuable and the groom's clan paid a bride price to the bride's clan. Quite rare in comparison was dowry, a payment by the bride's clan to the new couple. Mostly, this was practiced by upper classes of monogamous but highly unequal societies in medieval Europe and India, and was ultimately motivated by the far greater reproductive potential of upper class sons than upper class daughters in those societies. Since literature was mostly written about upper classes, dowry often plays a role in European traditional stories. This does not reflect its actual frequency across human cultures. 
it was quite rare. Marriages between clans could form a closed cycle of collectibles. Indeed, two clans exchanging partners would be sufficient to maintain a closed loop, as long as brides tended to alternate. If one clan was wealthier in collectibles from some other kind of transfer, it could marry more of its sons to better brides in monogamous societies, or a greater number of brides in polygamous societies. In a loop involving only marriages, primitive money would simply serve to replace the need for memory and trust between clans over a long period of delay between unbalanced transfers of reproductive sources. Like inheritance, lawsuit, and tribute, marriage requires a triple coincidence of the event, in this case the marriage, with supply and demand. Without a transferable and durable store of value, the current ability of a groom's clan to supply the current desires of the bride's clan to a large enough degree to make up the value mismatch between bride and groom, while also satisfying the political and romantic constraints of the match, were quite unlikely to be well satisfied. One solution is imposing an ongoing service obligation from the groom or his clan to the bride's clan. This occurs in about 15% of known cultures. In a much larger number, 67%, the groom or groom's clan pays the bride's clan a substantial amount of wealth. Some of this bride price is paid in immediate consumables, in plants to be gathered, harvested, and animals slaughtered for the marriage feast. In herding or agricultural societies, much of the bride price is paid in livestock, a long-lasting form of wealth. The balance, and usually the most valuable portion of the bride price in cultures without livestock, is paid with what are usually the most valuable family heirlooms, the rarest, costliest, and most durable pendants, rings, and so on. The Western practice of the groom giving the bride a ring and a suitor giving a maiden other kinds of jewelry was once a substantial transfer of wealth and was common in many other cultures. In about 23% of cultures, mostly modern ones, there is no substantial wealth exchange. In about 6% of cultures, there is mutual exchange of substantial wealth between bride and groom clans. In only about 2% of cultures does the bride's clan pay the new couple a dowry. Unfortunately, some wealth transfers were a far cry from the altruism of the inheritance gift or the joy of marriage. Quite the opposite in the case of tribute. The Spoils of War All right, and there we have it. That will close out part three of Shelling Out, The Origins of Money. Um, and uh, I don't want to talk too much about this um, because we'll be jumping right back into part four tomorrow to finish, thing, uh, finish this whole piece out with the spoils of war, um, disputes and remedies, attributes of collectibles, and his conclusion. Um, so uh, uh, don't forget to check out Cryptoconomy.life if you want to get this whole thing in full as one unit to download so that you can listen to it later. Um, I will be editing that and putting that up either tomorrow after I finish up um, part four or possibly Monday um, when I get back to it, uh, I'll be heading out for the weekend, so I won't be, I won't be here to uh, work on it if I don't finish it tomorrow. Okay, guys, 
Um, thank you so much for listening. Do not forget to follow Nick Zabo on Twitter and check out the Nakamoto Institute. As always, I will have the same links available in this one as with the previous two parts. And um, don't forget to follow me at The Crypto Economy on Medium, Mastodon, and Twitter. And, uh, of course, like I said, check out CryptoEconomy.life so you can see the entire collection of stuff I've got going on and the tons of other work I have in the pipeline. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and stick with me. I think I've got some really fun stuff headed for early next week, uh, and you don't want to miss it. If you would like to support the show, my Bitcoin donation address is always available. Thank you so much to anyone who has done that and helped keep this thing running. Uh, it's a huge, huge thank you, um, and it really, really means a lot. Uh, and if you have not gotten your Trezor hardware wallet or would like to purchase one of the books uh, that I am reading right now, The Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos and The Drunkard's Walk on the Theories and History of Randomness, um, uh, both all, or all three of those are available um, on the website cryptoeconomy.life. Um, and, of course, actually in the show notes of each of these episodes. So it's really easy to find if you wanted to uh, support the show that way and get one of those uh, for yourself. Uh, and that will do it. We'll go ahead and close this here. Um, thank you so much for listening, guys. I'll see you all back here tomorrow with another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys. <laughs>